0: Hi, everyone. If you're looking to expand your business through mergers and acquisitions, that's great, but you need to make sure you have the right financing in place, and this is why. Hi, I'm Jillian Sedoti.
1: And I'm Nate Dodson, and today we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into growing your business through acquiring other businesses, kind of what the process is, the legalese, the financing considerations and just dive a little deeper as we started the week before. Jillian, just to kind of remind everybody where we're at, if I'm trying to grow my business, why am I targeting an acquisition?
0: Oftentimes, somebody's already built something out, right? So you don't have to start from scratch. They already have the systems in place. They already have the the client list, you know, things like that. And really what you're looking for is, you know, businesses that are either exactly the same, you know, you're going to acquire your competition or businesses that complement your current business. You know, there's some businesses that are obviously toxic, not acquirable et cetera, even some of those businesses that might be toxic, they might have some assets that are worth acquiring. So you don't have to start a whole new business from scratch.
1: And to jump off on that, we talked all about, you know, actually when I acquired your law firm and kind of the benefits of that with the synergy between the practices growth of the client base and really bringing all the systems together, to continue to scale. Then we also had another example of an acquisition that I didn't pursue when the law firm actually didn't have much in the way of systems, really the way that it automated. It just had a great client list that at the end of the day, just really didn't make sense or, or benefit moving forward. But I'd like to talk a, a little bit about how it could have made sense.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. And, I'd and actually like so to hear Bring that. up
1: something that, that <laughs> you talk about it's something that really I know that you know that we need to focus on which is if you're selling your business how can it be structured so it also makes sense to you if you're have an expectation that you're just going to get this massive check right off into the sunset and the reality is is that's not really the way it works Uh, so talk a little bit about seller financing the process of it and then really how it can be structured where it's mutually beneficial, both to the sellers and to the the companies that are buying and growing.
0: Okay. So first, what maybe I you talk- can just
1: kind of describe what seller financing go for yeah. it.
0: Yeah, Seller financing is exactly what it sounds like. The, the seller is providing some kind of financing. Like in other words, they're agreeing to take payments instead of all the cash up front. And uh, this is really, to me, important, most, especially in, service-based businesses that were, you know, entirely founder focused. I felt like I had been personally, I had been working the firm towards a less founder focused firm for the last several years prior to selling the firm to you, where I was trying to take myself out of the role of being like the most important person in the business. However, like, That's not a super easy thing to do. If you build a business around you, your personality around, you know, what your values are for customer service, it's hard to let a potential client know like, hey that this is what's happening and this is how you're going to be affected they don't want to hear that they're not interested in that so i knew before i even sold that there was going to be that kind of transition like i had been doing all the public speaking for the firm and i did a lot of the customer the customer service because the reality is that if you're a lawyer a competent lawyer who understands securities law You can run a securities law firm. You don't need, I'm not a shiny unicorn, you don't need me. But if you build that image up in the minds of the client, where they think you're the best and you're super special and you start to believe some of your own BS, which I tried really hard not to, you have to be able to understand that is something you've got to take care of for your buyer going forward, the buyer being you. And I had to make sure that, that there was a transition of comfort, for not just the client but for nate as well for nate and his team as well so they didn't feel like they were buying something they could never use because it all depended so highly on me and i think um the seller financing definitely helped with that because i knew that if you weren't going to be successful you were going to stop paying me right what what was owed uh so that was that's why it's really important let me summarize yeah
1: Leah, let me summarize a little bit of what I'm hearing you say, and I agree with it entirely. But if you're looking to sell your business, the first step is to systematize it to the extent that it's not just a business of your personality, especially if it's a service-based industry, which is very difficult to transfer. Mm -hmm. So that's a big step one. Step two is if you can, again, it's a difficult... Uh, acquisition on the buy side. It's your personality and your baby on the sell side. There has to be an amount of give and take and expectation that it's going to be a time period to transition the clients, transition the business, the employees and everything else. So again, it's not just, here's a big check right off into the distance and and i'd like to to bring up a little bit of how i've seen that kind of structured uh, a lot more recently but then the third thing that that i hear you bring up is really to be able to do the carry back seller financing which is unbelievably important i i see it as part of the structuring issue but to a large extent if you were just expecting a big check and that's it and we we're all going to play nice in the sandbox it probably wouldn't have closed because mm-hmm. that's a tall order to do when in the alternative I feel like the way that we worked it out with ongoing payments to pay you off for a long time, initially kind of tied to how well the transition goes, how well the acquisition goes. And then ultimately, it just made sense to continue it and set it. And I I feel like we worked out our seller financing better than most did or can and and i think that that is one of the major drivers of why it ended up working out with us
0: yeah oh absolutely and and the other other acquisitions that have been available or i've had other lawyers call me and say hey i want to sell my firm now how can i sell my firm without you know selling it to the wrong person and having it driven into the ground and one of the things we did for a long time is I had availability of taking the assets back if I needed to and then there became a certain point in time where that became ridiculous like what like I I didn't need to do that anymore so all of I don't have any kind of stronghold on certain assets anymore like domains for example uh that was actually intentional, not intentional. I held on to like domain names for a super long time so that that kind of secured my interest going forward in the event that Nate stopped paying me. Also, uh, I had access to other assets as well, so that in the event that Nate stopped paying me, I could grab all those back. But of course, I never made it to do that. And so I would tell you, if you're a seller and you're afraid of these things, that's a great way to kind of secure your interest. And then you could also file a UCC1 filing against certain assets as well because that that's the big concern for the seller is well how am i going to protect my interest how do i know you're not going to drive your business into the ground and i actually for a long time had an employee who that that very thing happened to he sold his business on terms The purchaser drove the business into the ground and he had no way of getting the business back. It was done. It was finito. They bankrupted it. And then after they bankrupted it, of course, no more payments came to him. And that really put him in a very precarious situation. So those are the risks with doing seller financing.
1: And to jump off on that, that actually brings up a whole different perspective on the acquisitions. If you're doing the seller finance, if you have an ongoing relationship with your business, Mm that the seller also needs to do their due diligence on who the actual buyer Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. and are they competent do they have the background and the ability to run your business in the way or better than how you've done it in the past. Right. So that's a a huge component that people don't think about. And
0: and that was the other thing too. Uh, I had other people who were interested in buying the business and I didn't even give them the time of day because I I mean, it wasn't even a conversation. They could have offered me three times as much as what you guys were offering me and it wouldn't have made a difference because I didn't have the confidence that they were going to perform. So I didn't even entertain it. So yeah, absolutely. The seller needs to do their due diligence If you're especially if you're going to offer seller financing, like let's just say you're not offering seller financing, it's a cash deal, you're getting rid of it, and you're getting cash and you're going to run away to the Bahamas or whatever, which is awesome. If that happens, if there's any kind of reputational harm that could happen from that sale, and then the buyer eventually doing something that hurts your future reputation, then that's another reason why to consider having a good buyer as well. It's not always just about the money. It's also about reputation.
1: And from experience, and, and this wasn't the first rodeo of acquiring a law firm or merging with the law firm. It really is that consistency of communications, not just between the buyer mm-hmm. and seller, but with the the clients mm-hmm. and the prospects there, and the employees. There just has to be this smooth continuation. Otherwise, people start to freak yeah. out. It doesn't matter if it's somebody that's worried about their job or clients thinking, am I actually going to get the service or the product how I'm used to and how I expect? So I I think it really comes down to a continuing relationship for a transition of that over what can be a year's time period. I'm I'm glad that we didn't take years. But I've seen it happen that way. Mm-hmm.
0: No, and that was a huge thing. We, uh, I remember very early on, I'd have I would call up clients and say, "Hey, this is what's happening now," and they would say, "Okay, can you just be on this these first couple of conference calls?" And I would have to like literally go to conference calls and just sit there and be quiet to give them peace of mind that everything was going to be okay. Or and same with the employees, right? I came to a bunch of meetings in the beginning, and then I just slowly stopped appearing. And that's when the employees got very comfortable with saying, "I used to work for Jillian." You know, at first it was it was nerve wracking because some of them, some of the employees, uh, you know, I had known not just for years, but I knew because our kids were friends. Um, So it was really weird for them to be like, wait, I'm not working with you, who I was so close to in so many other ways, other than just like employee-employer relationship. So, you know, I think buyers and sellers, that's something you also want to consider when selling a business is how are the other stakeholders going to react and how are you going to handle those reactions?
1: You know what, I'd like to reflect a little bit on kind of structure that I've seen work out well in both service and product-based businesses over the last couple of years. And it's a great way to think about it. And I've seen a lot of private equity firms close on acquisitions with, I kind of see it as a unique structure, but something to think about is if I'm trying to buy your business and there you've got, the founder's personality, everybody knows you. A lot of what I've been seeing is, hey, I'm gonna buy 90% of your business. I'll still leave you with 10%. I want you to continue working for the business for a one-year time period at this great compensation level. And then year two, I want you to start backing off, but you're still going to be part time with the goal of hitting that 18 to 24 month after the actual closing for you to be able to ride off into the sunset. And enjoy your time. <laughs>
0: exactly. I mean, that's what I did, and here we are still today, right? I think it's been a long time. I mean, I still get those occasional emails, like, "Hey, Jillian, can you help me out with this?" And I say, "Nope, go, go to Nate. Go to Nate." But it was a while. It was probably a good year, maybe even year and a half before people got used to the idea that I wasn't there anymore. That I had moved on. And so it's really important now that I for the for the sake of you know my friends, my employees for Nate and his team, the health of the firm, that I don't ignore those messages now. And that's what you really, again, what you want to find in a seller and in a buyer. Like if a if a seller continues to be contacted by Potential clients are they going to be responsive and send them to you? Are they going to drum up a relationship with a competitor and take from both sides? Get my payment over here for selling the business, and then get a payment, a referral payment, business over here, like over here on from a competitor. So another thing you want to that you bring up
1: an amazing point. Just if you're buying somebody else's business, there should always be some level of non-compete
0: for sure
1: as part of the purchase agreement or a separate agreement because you don't want to buy your competitor, fund your competitor, and then they still be, well, exist as a competitor. That can be a real downside if you don't make sure to protect yourself legally, even after the acquisition occurs. Oh, for
0: sure. For sure. It's a lot of like moral compass too. Absolutely. You have to make sure that your ethics and morals align with each other as well. Or if they don't, just be keenly aware of it so it doesn't come to bite you in the butt. You just don't wanna throw good money after a bad business.
1: I I would like to bring up, we talked a lot about seller financing. If you actually go to a bank or the SBA, there are some great programs out there to get your business acquisition financed, Mm -hmm. but you always have to be cognizant that you may have to bring cash to the table to get the financing. And then you're also stuck with, well, the debt as a personal guarantor. Mm -hmm. If the business doesn't go well, you're still paying back that bank debt too. Generally ends up being a little bit of a cheaper debt in terms of interest to the sellers uh, with seller back financing. But there ends up being a lot of strings attached to those bank financing as well. So it's an option but it can be a very expensive, even more high risk option because acquisitions can be more high sure. risk.
0: For sure. Let's talk for a second about other ways. Like, let's just say you have a seller who's like, no, I'm dying. Like, I've, I've dealt with this before, right? A seller's like, I gotta sell my business. Okay, will you take terms? I absolutely will not take terms. Why not? Because I'm dying. I need the money now. I need to settle my affairs. I need to settle my estate. I need the money now. I need a cash buyer. What do you do then, Nate? Like, What do you do in that situation?
1: A great way to do it is to do a a partial finance where there is some amount of cash that's paid or alternatively, a carry back for a portion of the the purchase price and then actually work with the seller to get financing for the assets of the Mm -hmm. business. So it is kind of like a cash out refi. Mm. But then going forward, there's the change of economic terms past that so that's a great way to get the sellers some money up front keeping the family happy while at the same time limiting the risk on the buyer's side of what's going to happen rather than pay 100 percent of the sale price right up front and then take the full brunt of the risk sure. as a buyer
0: like have you actually done any of these acquisitions with raising money from outside investors
1: me personally buying no, the business no, no but have I worked with businesses that that's their entire game plan? Absolutely. Here's a great example, and it used to be huge in the markets in the past. I think it's gonna start coming back, start seeing a lot more marketing towards this, Mm -hmm. is building roll-up opportunities or conglomerates where you set up a fund and the entire fund's purpose is to acquire other business interests. And as long as you're buying a majority, or your structure where you can roll everything up to that one fund whenever you hit certain thresholds. It's an amazing way to really go from a no revenue startup fund, raise some capital, and build your multi-million dollar cash flowing business simply through these Mm -hmm. acquisitions. And, And absolutely love to see how these have been working out. I've got a client right now Long-term goal is to put together $50 million in EBITDA income and then go public. And he's already started with a couple of acquisitions and he's done them all, seller financing. He's getting ownership of those businesses. He put it into a fund. He's now selling pieces of that business, not just for the acquisition, but for the future acquisitions as well. He's selling to the investors not just a dream but an actual participation in a great cash flowing business with the goal of continuing to do that up to hitting that 50 million EBITDA earnings before interest and taxes level and then just going public and taking his you know half a billion dollars and saying goodbye.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's so great. Wow. What kind of businesses is he acquiring?
1: Uh, he, his is very focused on home repair construction. So he's acquiring HVAC, plumbing, contractors, roofers. And so he, he's choosing a market and now he's looking for cash flowing acquisition targets. And he's doing exactly what we're talking about, bringing a little bit of money to the table, but it's generally seller financing that's allowing him to pick it up but actually having that skin in the game and capital actually makes the acquisitions that much easier to find and to close. So he's now on his next step of, let's start a fund, roll in the business I've already acquired, and now continue to acquire new businesses. But it's a lot easier if you are working with private investors to have a business that you're capitalizing versus selling the dream. This is what we hope to accomplish and hope yeah. to find. So there's there was method to the madness. And so we kind of started working with them day one. Here's the dream. And now we're at stage three. Let's bring in the capital for more acquisitions. Oh, awesome.
0: So it, it goes beyond seller financing. It goes beyond just cash. There's all kinds of ways to, to, to get this done, but you don't have to necessarily use debt like traditional bank debt.
1: And the traditional bank debt, when it comes to business acquisitions, is really one of the toughest ways to finance, Mm -hmm. and it really comes down to, well, are there assets? So many businesses don't have a lot of assets. Mm -hmm. When I acquired crowdfunding lawyers, uh, the assets were the names and some technology that anybody could go out and buy. That, That was it. There weren't a whole bunch of computers. There weren't vehicles. There weren't machinery. Sometimes if you're acquiring a business that has those assets, it's easier to get that bank financing because there's the intrinsic value of the assets versus the goodwill of what's the business been doing. So that actually makes it quite a bit more difficult to get traditional bank financing where equity investors see the light, see the plan and understand. And with the seller carry back, they already know and understand the value of their business They're the ones that built it.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So how do you value, and maybe you don't know this question, the answer to this question, maybe it's a loaded question, but how do you value that goodwill?
1: You know, every industry and every business is valued a little bit differently. And oftentimes at the end of the day, if you look at the type of industry and then there's comparables in the legal field, as an example, there's kind of two big different ways to do evaluation One is a multiple on revenue, which is more so used. And it's like one to one and a half times revenue. But that's more so used for these smaller firms, you know, the the solo entrepreneurs, the solo practitioners. Once you have more of a firm with a team, with multiple attorneys, It's not just about the revenue because you just can't cut it all out. Then we start paying attention to what's the net income or what's the earnings before interest and taxes. And there's generally a much higher multiple. So like of revenue, it may be one times or one and a half times revenue. But if it's a bigger company, that's too high of a value because you have all the expenses going along with it. So you may actually end up with a three to five times net profit as a valuation, but that's really specific to kind of a Mm services-based business, a legal practice Mm -hmm. or accounting practice. If you were in manufacturing or construction, there is a bunch of assets. Mm. And so you have to take that into account along with the revenues and then just kind of the difference between the hard assets and what you're paying tends to be the goodwill because it doesn't make sense any other way but to consider it that goodwill. But you always have either a multiple on the revenues or a multiple on the net profits really ends up being that driving mm. factor.
0: This is a lot of information for people to, to swallow, <laughs> to gather, to put together in their minds. So what, what would you say if you gave like three steps of what to do next, what would those be?
1: All right. Three steps to your own acquisitions. Step one is to figure out what makes sense for your business in terms of a target and your growth. Step two is you got to find that business and have a willing seller. Step three is figuring out if it's a good deal and how you're going to pay for it. So that's where that due diligence and financing comes into play. The legal contract with the sellers is generally a purchase agreement, but you also deal with if there's going to be seller back financing, if there's going to be continuing interests or services or a non-compete. All that comes in with the step two with the purchase agreements. And then, of course, finding what makes the most sense for your business, having that long-term goal of where you want to be, in the next 12, 18, 36 months.
0: That's really, like, really super straightforward. That's awesome. So, who's, who's gonna go out there and acquire some properties? If you uh, have some businesses you're gonna acquire to expand your business, maybe they are properties. I don't know. You might be buying, like, a, an entire building with a gym inside or something, right? It could be a property. You could be getting real estate while you're acquiring these businesses, which is a, You know a great bonus so if you're gonna go out there and acquire some businesses let us know in the comments below let us know what you're acquiring and maybe we'll keep an eye out for you and let you know if we find anything juicy pass it on to you nate any final words
1: we're always here to help you know what it's a an amazing market out there that new
0: opportunities
1: are coming online constantly, but it's on you to do the work to find those diamonds in the rough as well and make all your business dreams come true.
0: I'm Jillian Sidoti
1: and I'm Nate Dodson and this is why.